0: Out of interest, has anybody come this morning because they saw the amazing preach at the royal wedding yesterday? Because uh, if that's your level of expectation, uh, you're in for a fun morning. Um, So as a church, we are in the middle of uh, what we're calling the year of biblical literacy. The aim of this year is not not for us to come away with more memory verses, but for us to learn how to Read the Bible and grapple with the Bible um, and really try and understand what it means when it says what it says. Um, so far this year we've looked at the story of God, the kind of overarching theme for many of us if we've been brought up in church in particular. Our understanding of the story of God is, is we were bad, we sinned and, uh, and then Jesus came to rescue us. And whilst that bit is true, that's not the whole story. So we would say that God, uh, in brief, if you want to listen to this, go to the website. There's this whole series called The Story of God. Have a listen. But we would say the story looks something like this. God created everything around us, all that we see, all of creation. And it was good, and we sinned, and Jesus did come to redeem us, to bring us back into relationship with God. But that's not the end of the story. The, The story ends with the restoration of all things. And that's something that we get to partner with God. In uh, last week, Steve then started this series we're calling "The Prophet," where we're looking at the book of Isaiah and the prophets more broadly. Um, uh, and, and this is, for me, this one's been fun, because I've always read, read the prophets a certain way, and this has been quite eye-opening for me. Um, and the question we need to start with, I guess, is: what is a prophet? So We may say a few things when we talk about prophets. We might say that they they predict the future. They see the future. They speak it out and and it happens. We might say that they look at society and and, and they can see what God is doing and become part of social reform. So talking about somebody like Martin Luther King um, who really I suppose was was one of the, the key figures in the civil rights movement in America but across the world. And we might say that uh, a prophet is a herald, so a lot so there 's a good amount of the writing of the prophets which says there 's a messiah coming, Jesus is coming, and, and really heralding that and those are those are useful things, but we would actually really when we 're looking at a prophet what we 're saying is um, somebody who who is an intermediary between God and man, somebody who speaks and we consider them to be speaking the voice of God, expressing the emotions of God, because that 's what we see in in the prophets is is some of the emotion some of what God is feeling towards his people comes out becomes clear and we 're using this quote um, throughout this series, which says this: the prophet was an individual who said no to his society, condemning habits and assumptions, its complacency, its waywardness, its syncretism. His fundamental objective was to reconcile man. To God. Now, I don't know if you're like me, maybe you've in the past read the prophets and you've gone, these guys are angry. <laughs> you know, these, guys are, these guys are miserable. Um, but actually, what they're doing is they're highlighting that God is desperate to reconcile man to himself. And I don't know how you read, when I read the prophets, they kind of sound like the rambling old crazy person, like when they depict men of God in Monty Python. You know what I mean by that? Like a little bit doolally, a little bit not quite, and just all over the place. And partly that's because of the way they write. They write in songs at times, in poetry at times. But sometimes they go from doom and gloom to hope in the same passages. And you think, what on earth is going on? But we can fit most of, almost all of what the prophets are saying into three, uh, for want of a better phrase, boxes, into three things, into three purposes. So one would be uh, accusation where God is coming to Israel and Judah and he's saying, uh, actually, you're you're going against the covenant that I made with your people. And sometimes that sounds like God is just mad and just angry and that's the end of it. It's not quite that simple because actually what God is doing, he's pointing those things out because he's saying, in this covenant is my plan for the entire world. And, and you're not being in that covenant is a is a problem. So there's accusation and there is warning. So these are the consequences for not coming back into that covenant. So, and we see this happen. is They're warned about going into exile, about having their lands taken off them, about having their, their own authority to govern themselves taken off them. And that's what happens. So we see the promised lands taken from them. But then, as, as well as accusation, as well as warning, there is then hope. Uh, One day there will be a Messiah that God's redemptive plan will take will come into fruition. Uh, And there will be this hope and this reconciliation between man and God that is also then hope for the restoration of all of the world. And you can fit most of what the prophets write into one of these three things. And this gave me great clarity because I could see why they're saying what they're saying. They're not just rambling, they're fulfilling a purpose. So this morning we are, this talk is loosely called The Plan and the Hope of God. And we're going to start, there's a few key passages. If you're the kind of person that likes to keep up with the Bible passages, uh, you um, just put your thumb now in Isaiah 5, Isaiah 10 uh, and Luke 11. So we're going to start in Isaiah 5. So this is a song and it says this, Isaiah 5 verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love. That's Isaiah singing for God. A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. He looked for a crop of grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem, people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clown... I did this earlier. For some reason I can't say clouds. So what I say is, I will command the clowns not to rain on you. (laughs) But it says clouds. Okay? I just can't say it in the sentence. Um, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, and he heard cries of distress. Now, that is a happy song if ever I've read one. Would you agree? Uh, But what's happening is this. God is using this, this image of a vineyard. And what he's saying is, 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 is I planted a, a vineyard. I worked hard for it to cultivate it. And he's talking about Israel and Judah. And he said, I've done all these things that you need to produce good fruit. And, and in, within that there is included the promises that he made to Abraham and to Moses and to other people. There is the Exodus where he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And to the promised land where they had their own land. I did all these things. The conditions were right and he watched over them, but when he came to harvest them, what he found was bad fruit. So what was God looking for? If it's bad fruit, what was it that God was looking for? What would be good fruit? We can read it in verse 7, where we kind of come out of the song and Isaiah summarises what he's singing about. And he said, this is what God was looking for. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Righteousness and justice, these are two things we, we maybe we, we hear a lot in church. I don't, I don't know what your background is. In the Old Testament, righteousness and justice are referred to 200 times. And we can trace it all the way back to God's covenant with, with Abraham. Now, I don't know how you're getting on with the year of biblical literacy. Um, I've always been taught to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, which I think is right. But as the year goes on, I'm just more and more aware of how much I do not understand the Old Testament and how much I do not understand how much of an impact it has on shaping our faith today. So we're going to go back to Abraham and we seem to come back to Abraham an awful lot this year. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, We're going to go to Genesis 18 uh, and it says this, so Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So right from the beginning, there's the call to Abraham, for him, for his family, for his descendants, to bless the whole or to be a blessing to the whole earth, so that God's blessing can flow through them. And how? Actually, through justice and righteousness. By being just and right. And interestingly, this is just a bit of an aside, that passage in Genesis 18, that's the same passage of scripture that leads to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, how how many of us think that the destruction of... This was me, How many of us think the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was just to do with homosexuality, and that was the thing? Actually, that's not, as it turns out, the case. Ezekiel says this, who's also one of the prophets. Uh, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. It's those same issues. It's righteousness and justice. So we're seeing God's plan to bless the entire world through a community of righteousness and justice. And I think we need to maybe have a bit of a uh, look at what righteousness means and, and, and draw a distinction between the possible meanings because some of us go when we hear righteousness, we go, Well, but Jesus died on a cross and died for my sins and now I'm righteous before God and yes that's right, but that's that's not the, the end, that's not you're off the hook, that's not how really how it works it's not a case of stamp your ticket and get into heaven. Because on the one hand, there is forgiveness and acceptance in righteousness, and and that's what Jesus did, where we can stand before God as his children, knowing that we're forgiven and we are accepted. But then God calls us to live righteously, to be a community of righteousness. Uh, In in Philippians 2, uh, Paul says this to the church, Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but much, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. In two Peter, uh, I'd encourage you to read two Peter one one to nine because it's, it says that it, Peter gives this list of things that we should do now that we are saved, and he said, "It's add to your faith that actually." Being saved is is good, and we want that for everybody. But actually, that's not it. That's not all of it. There's a, a, a quote a guy called Bruce Walker who says this: "Righteousness is a pattern of life, not merely specific acts." And I think this is in, this is important because some of us hear that a quote. We think about righteousness, and what comes to mind is, "Oh, I've got this." problem with gluttony, I've got a problem with pornography, I've got a problem with this, that and the other. We think it's just about the problems. But no, the quote is this, righteousness is a pattern of life, not merely specific acts. What is at stake is personhood, not merely performance. Righteousness refers to the moral quality that establishes right order. And justice refers to the moral quality that restores order when it is disturbed. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community and the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Why is God mad in Isaiah 5? Why is he seemingly angry with with Judah and with Israel? Because of the bad fruit, but that's this, bloodshed or taking advantage of the poor, the powerful becoming more and more powerful. And it's not just so when I read the prophets historically, it's worked out like this. God is just angry with them because they are sinners. And it's more complex than that. How can Israel be a light to the nations? How can God bless the world through them when their own society is out of whack? That actually there is little righteousness and no justice amongst them. How can God bless the nations through that? That is why God is mad, not just because they're sinful as such, the way we often think about it. And have you ever read the prophets? You look back and you go, "Oh, Israel, you're so silly. If you'd only done it, done the right things, things would look much different." Has anyone ever thought that? How do these guys get it so horribly wrong? Yeah. Um, but what we have to realise is calling to be a community that brings about that is righteous and, and just. That call is now ours. And if that's the thing that God was upset about, actually there's, we need to be aware that that is now our calling. That is what we are supposed to do. And if you live by this, the truncated story of God's big story, which is sin management, you know, Jesus coming and dying for us to make us right so that we can get into heaven, you are disempowered by your own mindset to be able to do what God has called us to do. Because actually the big story would tell us that creation was good and God is going to restore that creation and we are part of that and our calling is to be a blessing to the world around us, to bring righteousness and justice. And that doesn't just mean the church with this kind of ethereal capital C that we think, are oh, just the church. That applies to us as sons and daughters of God. This is our Cool. This is what God has called us back to. See, God is not vengeful. He's fighting for, actually, for the restoration of creation. He's fighting for these people. The scriptures talk about, are really all about God's reconciliation, the redemption, the restoration. And what we see, we see God do that through Jesus. We see Jesus do that whilst he was on earth, and we, now that hope that we have in Jesus is ours. We are the Holy Spirit-filled, empowered church. The community by which he wants to bring about righteousness and justice. And grasping these concepts matters. A quote we use quite a lot is an A.W. Tozer quote from a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It says this, What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God Himself. The most and the most significant fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. So what is your mental image of God? Because I think we live in a culture We live in a society that is becoming increasingly individualistic. And I think as a church, we're currently treading a fine line where we are discovering what it means to be sons and daughters of God once again, which is good. But there's a fine line between that and individualism where we make this vast story that God has called us into about us. That Jesus died just for me to prepare a place just for me in heaven you know that that becomes all about us and it becomes well god can only bless me with, god is going to bless me with good things and it's all about the things that i receive and if our mental image of god is this god that's wrapped around us then there's a problem because can I, I don't know if i can say this but i'm going to say it you can throw things at me if you want if if our image of god is wrapped around us then are we really worshiping god or are we worshiping ourselves the other option is to realize that we're part of this big story, that, that actually our image of God is of a God who is out to restore the nations, to heal the nations, to reconcile them back to him. And to reconcile a world that's gone very, very bad. And that God loves each of us, yes, but it is not about us. There's a difference between those two things. It's about his plan. And in the prophets, Israel and Judah, they're not living up to that calling. So God allows them to be exiled, And he deals with the the, the unrighteousness and the injustice and the false worship. And it's not pretty. It's not a pretty story. It leaves people with lots of questions they can ask us about God. But they get the message eventually. In Isaiah, there's all sorts of imagery about a land that's laid to waste or a land that's scorched by fire. and, 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 And loggers come in and destroy whatever is left of this forest and cut it down to stumps. And if all this is kind of God's plan... Is there any hope? Is there any hope? We're going to read just Isaiah 10 and some of Isaiah 11. So Isaiah 10, verse 33 and 34 says this. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs of great power. The lofty trees will be felled and tall ones will be brought down low. He He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe and Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. That's that imagery of loggers coming and chopping down these trees, to the stumps, so they are lifeless. But Isaiah 11 then continues with this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness a sash around his waist. So there's a lot of imagery in this. The first being that this, this idea that, that these stumps are left and this particular stump is the the stump, if you like, the the lion of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David. And in the midst of this stump that has died, that has been cut off, there's a shoot. There is hope. There is new life. And there's imagery in there, all sorts of stuff. Um, but actually, this one that's coming is going to be a a better and a perfect King David that God's going to bring him about. And interestingly, that this this person will not rule by what they see and what they hear, but they will rule with with righteousness and with justice. Those two things again, righteousness and justice. So Isaiah is saying, one is coming. We haven't been faithful as a nation, but God is coming to accomplish reconciliation. How? Jesus. That's what this, this passage in Isaiah 11 is about, Jesus. This is our hope. This is the hope of God. It's still the same plan, but this is the hope of God. Jesus, at his core, has righteousness, and we see that when Jesus comes to earth. So when Jesus comes, fully God, fully man, he lives without sin. He is righteous, and he calls the people around him to be righteous. What does he say to them? Repent, change your thinking, go and sin no more. At the same time, he's also defending people caught in adultery. He's he's feeding the poor. Uh, he's spending time and talking to people that culturally, you just should not be speaking to. He is just. And I was reading through Isaiah 11 going, "Yes, the hope of Jesus, this is the good bit, this is the good stuff." And then verse four kind of ruined it for me a little bit, because it says this: "He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked." That's a little bit harsh, a little bit tough, that verse. But what it means is this: Jesus will come and speak. With truth and with purpose, he will tell you if you are right or you are wrong. He's not going to hold; he's not going to hold back any punches. He's he's going to call out your lies. And what we see here, what's talked about here, we begin we can see in the New Testament, and we don't talk about it a lot. When we talk about Jesus, maybe we think of Jesus meek and mild, Jesus walking on water, uh, Jesus feeding the poor, and all the rest of it, and and at a push, angry Jesus flipping tables. This is not side of Jesus we're talking about here, what we're seeing is Jesus the prophet, which we don't talk about much. So in Luke 11, verses 37 to 42, Jesus goes what I like to term full prophet mode. Uh, He just lets people have it. So when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. So the Pharisee said, well Jesus, you didn't wash before this meal, you are unclean. Uh, Jesus takes this well. He turns around and he says to them this, now then you Pharisee. You Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Jesus says, you can clean up for show, so that everyone can see you're clean. Great. But inside you're greedy. And God made the outside of you, but he made the inside of you. And actually what is inside of you is not clean. What is inside of you, you should be pouring out to the poor. And then you'll be clean. You should be giving it to them. Stop being greedy. And he kind of continues then, Woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former. And, um, what's he saying? You look great going to church. It's good that you give tithe. It's brilliant. But you neglect the poor. And you should be doing both, not one without the other. So as a, as a prophet, in that, that prophet mode, we see Jesus doing what the Old Testament prophets do. He's expressing the heart of God to these people. And I'd say this, what we see is, if we read it wrong, we see that Jesus is just calling out these people, calling them idiots. But he's not doing that. What he's doing is the same as the Old Testament prophets. He's pointing these things out to them to call them back. Call them back into this plan and this purpose that God has for them. Calling them back into this plan where there is a community of justice and righteousness. Because at the moment, it's just a community of religiosity. And there is a huge difference between the two. And I think that goes for us: if, if everything I'm saying just sounds negative, please don't let it be. Actually, what, the, the point of going through this is, actually, there is a plan that God has. there is a purpose that we share and that we get to play a part of. And I think when Jesus talks about you know, having the fullness of life within him, I think he's talking about some of this that actually it's not just about me dying on the cross for you, it's you come into this purpose, come into God's plan. Be part of this community that is right and that is just. At the core of Jesus' message and what he's saying there is it's good that you, you do the church stuff if we were to apply it to today. It's good that you do these things. It's good that you tithe. It's good that you serve. It's even good that you do compassion ministry stuff. It's all good I think one of the challenges for me as I've been preparing this is this idea that I realise that in myself there's, there's this idea that I go to a church that does lots of compassion stuff so therefore somehow I'm okay and I'm doing what God has asked me to. Does that make sense? That so just by being associated, just by giving to, I feel like I'm doing enough. But the reality is that each of us are uniquely placed to bring about this, this righteousness and justice. And if I could say this, and please take this the right way, that as a church we do lots of compassion stuff and we've set up a charity because it's the wise and the right thing to do. But if all that we do is serve in that compassion ministry, yet when we go home we don't talk to our neighbours that are in need, we don't seek righteousness for our own neighbourhoods, then perhaps we've missed the point. Okay? It is good to do those things. And Jesus says do both. But actually, if 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 what we are is a community of people who are seeking to bring about righteousness and justice, then that's for each one of us as a son or a daughter before God. And it's not about this kind of corporate thing, although hopefully that's what it is, because we're all active and part of it. So, what does it look like to be righteous and just for us? How do we apply this? Because Let's be honest, a lot of us are very busy, and we have these legitimate, or well, so feels legitimate, excuses. But actually, to, to fulfill this, we don't have to go very far. Okay. Maybe it's in, in your work environment. Maybe it's actually you know. Maybe, I don't know, this is all ideas, and you can apply this to your own setting. But... Maybe you're part of a management team at a company and you know full well people are being asked to work lots and lots of overtime and sacrificing their family life and not being paid for it when they should. Or maybe there's people in a boardroom that somebody's getting bullied and pushed out of the job and you know it's happening. Or maybe at school there are people that are being bullied and actually the, the right and the just thing to do is to get alongside them and support them. Maybe uh, like me, I work in, a, in an environment where I don't really have a lot of interaction with people. But there's still things for me to do because actually on the street that I live on, I know that there are people who struggle to eat three square meals a day. I know that there are people that, where the husband or the wife has died and they sit lonely in their house. I know that's on my street and they're on your street. And for some of you, just to challenge this, could I say that... So, bizarre story. I spent a year of my life working as a window cleaner in a really affluent area of Northampton. What did I realise that there are more drugs, there is more alcohol in the affluent areas of town than there is in the poor areas of town. It's just better hidden. The same problems are wherever we are. And I think the answer to that question, what does righteousness and justice look like for us, I think the answer is not terribly comfortable. I think when Jesus uses imagery like being like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden, when he uses, talks about us being the salt of the earth, when he talks about us being like a lamp that's put on in a house that lights up the whole house, that's what he's talking about. In some ways, we should be sticking out as a sore thumb in some of the environments that we're in. And that's difficult, that's not easy. But that is what we're called to. For some of us, we're talking about righteousness and justice. That's the justice side. For some of us, there's an aspect of righteousness where maybe it's just a, some sin things we need to work through. For some of us, we are desperate to see the kingdom of God come, to see healing and, and God do wonderful things. And we look at scriptures like Matthew 6 where He's talking about God, Jesus is talking about worry. And he says, there's all these things, but God's got it covered. Seek first God's kingdom and all these things will be added to you. What it actually says in that scripture is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So if we're ignoring righteousness in our own lives, that's an issue that we need to bring before God. And we're going to pray in a moment, but I just want to finish with this thought that if the plan of God is to bring about righteousness and justice and bless the world through us as we do that, then actually... Jesus was the hope of that happening. And what did Jesus say? Go and do it. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that you can do more than I could do if I stayed. Now go and do it.